The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. What I thought I'd try to do is give you um, a little bit of context, um, a little look at what's happening from China's perspective that might help us reframe the way we think about China in terms of being both um, a competitor and a partner. I've spent a lot of time thinking about China, um, first as a student back in the 1970s, and then as a journalist during the following two decades. Um, I covered China's early opening up to the outside world and its experiments with economic reforms. And then as the Newsweek bureau chief, I covered the dramatic um, democracy movement in 1989 and also China's the economic opening that followed that. But nowadays, I'm looking at China from an NGO point of view, and uh, where we're trying to actually get some positive things done in China. And in many ways, that's really changed my perspective um, on the question of working with China, et cetera. The, just a few quick words about what the Paulson Institute does. Um, the Paulson Institute was established four years ago by former Secretary of the Treasury, Hank Paulson. And the Institute works on uh, improving U.S.-China relations increasing economic ties, and broadly speaking on helping China to uh, address pollution and make the transition to a more sustainable economic model. Um, And the whole ultimate goal is to reduce carbon emissions and help in the fight against climate change. Um, We do a lot of concrete, practical work on the ground in China. So, for example, we have a sustainable urbanization program, which, um, among other things, trains China's mayors who are at the the front lines of implementing a more sustainable economic uh, uh, model. Um, Through policy advocacy and research, we're working on helping the heavily polluted region near surrounding Beijing called Jingjinji, which is it's Beijing, Tianjin, and Hebei province. And we're working on um, trying to help them make a transition to more sustainable model. Um, and we also do conservation work uh, with wetlands projects to protect important ecosystems and migratory birds from development. And, um, and we also have a national parks, national parks program, which is um, – going to be helping China with develop a management system for its national parks. So to sum it up, um, we're deeply in the business of engaging with China, um, helping China tackle its problems. And I've grappled with that word um, over the last 25 years, that word engagement. Um, and, you know, at times engagement can seem like a misguided idea, especially when For example, China is arresting hundreds of lawyers, um, as it has recently, for example, or it's tightening on, tightening control over the internet. Um, so why do I continue to think that engagement is so important? Um, the answer is because there's just so much at stake. And because there's so much upside potential in working together. I also believe that if you look on the other side, the risks of not engaging are so are, are enormous. Um, if you don't join a conversation, you have zero chance of influencing its outcome. So firstly, our, our economies are entwined with each other, um, as the recent stock market turmoil displayed. Secondly, if we don't work together on globally, global issues like climate change and economic stability, then we're all going to be in trouble. 
And thirdly, I still believe that engagement is our best chance of helping China move towards a more transparent and just economic and political system. There's been lots of rhetoric coming out of Washington. They discussed it just now with, um, you know, lots of people saying, oh, China's just going to eat our breakfast. China's rising economy is going to suck our, you know, keep sucking U.S. jobs away. So why should we be trying to help them succeed? And so I wanted to just toss out some reasons that I see that we shouldn't be afraid of engaging with China and we shouldn't be afraid of the rise of China um, and why we should be helping the Chinese to get their market-oriented reforms going, moving forward. The first, the first and foremost reason is that China is not about to eat our breakfast economically. I mean, China, if you look at China, what's happening in China these days, their economic model has, has actually run out of steam. And the central government realizes that they are facing a, a, a huge challenge in terms of the need to transform their economy. China's miraculous double-digit growth over the past few decades was built on ch- cheap exports and heavy state investment in infrastructure projects that were fueled by highly inefficient and heavily polluting uh, state-owned factories. And But now, you know, China has, has, has um, reached a more developed stage and the economy is slowing, and its weaknesses, the inefficiencies, the corruption, which were once forgiven um, because of such rapid growth, now those weaknesses are becoming serious impediments to future growth. The state-owned sector is bloated and inefficient, and it's protected from having to really compete by special privileges and policies. Um, and exports are no longer producing the kind of growth that they used to either. Um, in short, China really needs to reboot its $10 trillion economy. And the government has announced an ambitious re- reform plan to move towards a new model that would be based more on consumer consumption and services and less on heavy industry and exports and state-led investment in and in, in infrastructure. But that's a mind-boggling challenge. Um, you know, if you look at the Jingjinji region, Beijing, Tianjin, and Hebei, where the Paulson Institute is doing a lot of work, you know, it has 130 million people, and it accounts for 10% of China's total GDP. Eight of China's 10 most polluted cities are in Jingjinji, and that is saying something. Um, the region is heavily reliant on infrastructure and heavy industry. It produces 28% of China's total steel output. And if you look at Jingjinji, if it were a country, it would be the largest steel-producing country in the world, ahead of Japan. But now, the economy is slowing in China, and um, the steel sector is struggling, and workers are already losing their jobs. Um, it's a real problem. I mean, it's an enormous problem that the central government has to figure out. Um, and so if you just start thinking, think about opposition to change, the local governments in a region like Jingjinji, uh, they see little advantage to policies that are going to be opening up the economy to more competition. Um, you know, opening up to competition is just going to, as they would see it, would be allowing their state-owned enterprises to basically collapse. Um, so the, the transition to a more sustainable economic model is really daunting, and it's going to require very bold pro- policies um, the government is going to have to encourage efficiencies, uh, and it will have to allow inefficient companies to fail. 
Um, but at the same time, they'll have to do it somehow without putting too many people out of work. And that's just an enormous um, challenge. If you think about the need to launch massive retraining programs, um, you know, it's, it's – um, and the other thing I would say is that this is not just China's problem. Like, why should we care about Jing Jinji or China's ability to transform its economy? Um, we all have a lot at stake in terms of whether Jing Jinji and the Chinese economy overall can make this transition. Um, you know, firstly because of economic global economic stability, but also pollution, as we know, knows no borders. So if China can't succeed in tackling these problems, we're all in trouble. Um, so it's a huge and challenging proposition. And um, I guess the second, the second bit of context I wanted to try to offer um, beyond the question of whether we should fear China's economic rise is about politics. President Xi Jinping is up against unimaginable challenges in pushing through his reform agenda. There are enormous powerful vested interests who are deeply opposed to reform in China. Um, it may, you know, China may look like an authoritarian country, and its government in many ways is exactly that. But nonetheless, when President Xi Jinping announced his reform agenda, this bold agenda, um, in December 2013, in many ways his battles were just beginning. Um, here are just a few of the sectors that are opposed to what he is trying to do. State-owned companies whose fat cat bosses have gotten wealthy beyond imagination under the protected system, they don't want to have to face greater competition anytime soon. Local governments have also figured out clever ways to manipulate the system, getting massive loans uh, with no plans for repayment, so they don't want to see change either. The children of Communist Party leaders have benefited hugely from a corrupt, opaque system, and so they don't want to see change. And then there are just the plain corrupt officials and business bosses who have also figured out ways to maneuver and line their pockets in the current inefficient system, which has no real checks and balances. So a battle is underway, and President Xi is struggling against great odds to open up the economy and make the system of governance more efficient. Um, the second great political challenge that President Xi is facing is corruption, what I just mentioned. Um, corruption is corroding the system in China, and it's a situation that's so dire that President Xi himself has called his crackdown on corruption a question of life or death for the Communist Party. So some people think that he's using this um, anti-corruption campaign just to go after his own political enemies. And whether that's true or not is really unclear, but there's, there's no question that the campaign has struck fear uh, into the hearts of officials throughout the system. I mean, the system had become so corrupt that everybody basically has been in on the in on the game, and um, the crackdown has has really, um, you know, had a huge and had an enormous impact. Um, one of the reasons President Xi is so popular in China, in fact, is and he is quite popular, is that he's cracked down so hard on corruption, um, overseeing the arrest of so many senior level officials. Um, but the anti-corruption campaign, too, has led to opposition with there are rumors that there are very high-level senior retired leaders who are pushing back hard because they don't like to see, you know, their friends and various uh, officials getting arrested. So there's just 
you know, tons of opposition, and, and that, I'm, you know, coming to the end, but, but of my remarks, but that leads the, to the question of how, how strong is President Xi Jinping, and can he do, can he execute these reforms that he's launching? Um, you know, I'm sure you've already read that there's a political tightening underway. Western thinking has been outlawed on universities um, in China. Lawyers and NGOs are under increasing pressure, and there are tightened controls on the Internet and so on. So is that a sign of President Xi's strong arm, a sign of his strength, or is it a sign of a government that's scared of losing control in the face of growing dissent about a slowing economy and unemployment, catastrophic pollution and corruption? Um, If there's one thing I've learned in 25 years of watching China, it's that it's a fool's game to try to predict or know what's really happening in terms of politics um, in China. President Xi appears to be the strongest leader since probably since Chairman Mao. But everything he's doing is risky. Everything he's doing is risky. And he's making a lot of enemies. And with 180,000 protests in China around the country every year, 180,000, and opposition from so many quarters, it's easy to imagine that the central leaders are anxious about stability. And in China, you know, the the, um, instinctive reaction to any concerns about stability is to tighten up and um, tighten controls. So that's what we're seeing. Um, Finally, before I finish, I just wanted to talk a little bit about pollution, the pollution issue and the opportunities I see there, because I think that China's recent measures to tackle the problem are really a bright spot. a bright spot between, you know, the United States and China in terms of that relationship and offering tremendous potential for cooperation. Um, The Chinese, as I'm sure you've been following this, they've made a number of impressive statements over the past year. In a joint agreement uh, with President Obama last November, President Xi committed to capping its carbon emissions in 2030 and set, for the first time, set real targets for China. And just two weeks ago, China announced a commitment to launch a nationwide carbon emissions trading system called Cap-and-Trade in 2017. So people, we read in the newspaper here about how incredibly polluted China is, which all of which is true. But what we don't see so much is that actually what's happening in China right now makes China the global leader on environmental action far outpacing outpacing the United States, where we've run into all sorts of political opposition to those kinds of bold moves. Um, So skeptics wonder, is this just rhetoric? You know, is this reality? Is China actually going to do anything about these pollution issues, et cetera? The Paulson Institute is betting on it. That's one thing I can tell you. Um, We're deeply involved in trying to help China fight pollution and tackle climate change through research, policy, advocacy, and model projects. Um, The central government in China has made it clear that fighting pollution is a top priority. And one important important motivator and one reason that I think we uh, should believe what they're saying is enlightened self-interest. Again, although China may be an authoritarian government, at the same time with an increasingly open society, uh, the government has to listen to the people. And people have been talking a lot about the terrible, terrible pollution problems all over the country, especially in the capital city in Beijing. So 
you know, one, one reason that we should believe the government is serious about tackling pollution and hitting its aggressive carbon emissions targets is that President Xi knows that pollution is a political problem. If the government doesn't fix it, there could be very, very serious trouble politically. Um, so finally, just back to the question of engagement. Um, I am, of course, troubled by China's political tightening. Uh, and China's, they referred to China's, China's activities in the South China Seas, which are concerning to lots of people as well. But here are two, two final thoughts um, about why we need to deal with China. And I think Dan Rosen just now kind of was alluding to this at well, as, as well. The first one is that this is about the rise of a new global power. There's no question that the United States will have to adjust to accommodate and to shift. I mean, just think about how Britain had to come to grips with the fact that it was no longer the world's only great power, particularly with the rise of the United States. The British had to accommodate and adjust to a new global reality. And now the United States is going to have to do that too. It's just reality. And that does not necessarily need to be a bad thing. The U, in my opinion, the U.S. and Chinese economies can complement each other, contributing to a virtuous cycle of growth. I mean, we live in a complex, interdependent world today. Um, but I think this means that the United States should welcome China into rules-based international organizations so that China has a prominent seat at the table recognized for the importance of its economy. One thing China cares tremendously about is respect. And we can talk about that afterwards, but, you know, giving them an important seat at the table is, is crucial. Um, the IMF needs to be reformed to better accommodate China and India as important global economies. And the United States should be working with China's new Asian Inf Infrastructure Investment Bank, which, as you probably know, the United States declined to do so and basically opposed the establishment of this new bank. Um, Asia needs infrastructure investment, and China happens to be a real leader in that area. So why not join the institution and work from within? We have a better chance of influencing policies and ensuring that they meet high environmental standards, for example, if we're sitting at the table. Finally, I just believe that we should be wishing for China's success, not for its failure. The recent stock market turmoil illustrates just how interdependent our economies are. And if China's economic reforms don't succeed, if China fails to overhaul its slowing industrial economy, then we're all in trouble. If China doesn't succeed in cutting its carbon emissions, then our planet is doomed. Conversely, a healthy, growing Chinese economy will help keep the global economy growing and stable. And a successful and stable China is in all of our interest. So that's, that's what I got for you tonight. But um, I'm happy to, you know, have a talk about, have a talk about what's, what's going on. If you have questions, I'm happy to try, to try my best to answer. So fire away. <laughs> Go ahead. That is that between the Communist Party essentially and, and the people of China, 
and that was that we'll open up the doors of the economy to a certain levels of capitalism uh, and supply of money, um, but don't challenge us when it comes to how to run this country. Um, and it seems that uh, that works pretty well in an era where there is growth and the magnificent unheralded growth of the last uh, decade uh, it seems to be uh, slowing down a little bit. It's still growing, mm -hmm. but it seems to be slowing down. And in that slowing down, uh, it is pinching various uh, sectors. Um, I, I'm not sure whether to ask you a question or just make the observation that uh, that could create pressure points in this so in this contract, mm. and uh, whether it uh, come up in the form of uh, increased unemployment and then Yeah, I, th I mean, I think that's a really smart, um, smart analysis of what's going on. I mean, I think that, you know, basically, you know, I've been watching this place for a long time. So basically, it all kind of goes back to 1989, where they had a democracy movement. Then that was that was, you know, there was a crackdown on that, and the the sort of contract following that was we are going to open up the economy, go out and go forth and get rich, um, but you know, don't mess around with politics. And I think you're right that, you know, over the past 15, 20 years, there's been such dramatic growth that everybody was kind of, um, everybody was benefiting. And also back to the question of corruption, everybody was implicit as well, complicit, sorry. Everyone was basically kind of part of the system, this very corrupt system. Um, but as, you're right, that as the economy slows and you know, there's always been simultaneously a feeling among a lot of people in China that the system's rigged against me. Um, and that is much more evident when the economy is slowing down, right? And so exactly, you're nodding your head. I mean, you know, you know what I'm saying, but, but just to reflect it back to you, I think that's right. And I think that's exactly why, uh, you know, why we should believe that the Communist Party is really going to try hard to fix the pollution problem because it's a serious problem and it could lead to serious uh, unrest or whatever, you know, who knows. And, and you know, it's a weird thing. As, as I was saying, that my perspective has kind of changed now that I work for an NGO. Um, but I do feel very strongly that that is not, some, not a scenario that we should be wishing for. You know, it's not, that would not be good for anybody. And um, so, but yeah, I think I think that there are a lot of tensions, a lot of tensions in China, and a lot of areas of discontent. You know, I think you're absolutely right, and it's become an increasingly open society in many ways. People are are speaking out. Go ahead, yeah. Uh, you make a nice point about us are we, uh, pushing for China's success. Can you talk a little bit about the Chinese attitudes towards our part of the world? There was a yeah. Oh yes, 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 yes. Fascinating. Liu Ming Fu, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it's you know, it's really interesting and frustrating and sometimes to me depressing, but also maybe maybe it's reality that um, I think the vast majority of Chinese think that the United States is arrogant. 
Um, and it, there's, there's, you know, there's this love-hate relationship with the United States. They love American culture, and they love to come to the United States, and all of their children are studying here, and they want to, you know, hide their money here, and, you know, all that stuff is going on. Um, but at the same time, I think the Chinese are really, you know, it's about the rise of a new power. It really is. And the Chinese are sick of being treated as if they're not. Uh, you know, they're really proud when they see Xi Jinping and his gorgeous wife coming out looking like global leaders. You know, that's, I think there's a real um, kind of, uh, you know, it's not just kind of communist propaganda. It's like a heartfelt feeling of pride that China, the Chinese are having now for the first time in a very long time. And that, you know, can can turn into a scary thing. I mean, you know, that line between patriotism and nationalism is a very fine and, you know, treacherous one. Um, there's a lot of kind of growing scary nationalism in China these days. But there's also, you know, what what I think the reason I talk about welcoming them, them to the table, showing them respect and all that kind of stuff, showing the government the respect that it deserves for the size of its economy and all that, is about kind of nurturing a more healthy sense of patriotism instead of the unhealthy, scary nationalism that results from excluding them. So... Go ahead. I was just yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of it I mean I'm not an expert on, on economics or certainly not on foreign direct investment. Dan Rosen is your guy, but um, but I think that a lot of it has to do about wanting to be close to the market. And also part of it, I think, has to do with learning learning from the experience of being in a very open um, economy like ours so that it makes them more nimble and they pick up management practices that they can take home, that kind of stuff. So I think it has a kind of doubly good um, good effect in that – Number one, it creates jobs. I mean, I was sort of thinking, okay, $100 million investment, 300 jobs. That doesn't sound like that many jobs. But when he says it's a town of 5,000 people, it's a big deal, right? So so that's good. And then if at the same time it's kind of, you know, helping the Chinese come into the global economy and helping them to pick up ideas that they will then bring home about rule of law, for example. I mean, Forget about democracy. No one's in the business of trying to tell China they could be a democracy. That's not really the issue. But the issue that I think many, many Chinese feel so passionately about is the idea of fair play, rule of law, um, things like that, that you know, are hopefully ideas that come from like doing business in the United States, where you, know, you don't have to be afraid that the local communist party is going to come knocking on your door and will shut your business down because there are laws that protect you. Um, so all of that, I think, is, is good. But, but I, think it's, I think it's really more about being close to the market. And, and, and actually, labor has become much, much, much more expensive in China as well. So the benefit of you know, just manufacturing at home in China is no longer so great. So, yeah. Anybody else? I know it's getting late. You probably want to go home, which is... <laughs> so anyway, thank you. Okay, go ahead. Very quick one. As, yeah. the, as your economy slows and the pressure, there's more pressure on local officials, how is the Paulson Institute selling them on the idea of expensive, sort of, on expensive um, controls on pollution? 
Technologies, yeah, yeah. Th thanks, that's a great question, and it's a huge um, and challenging issue. One of the things that we're working on actually right now, about two weeks ago, the, um, the Chinese government announced um, the leading, it sounds very communist, is the leading group on finance and ec economics and finance of the, of the uh, uh, state council announced that the Paulson Institute has convened, um, we've convened a, a group of companies to come together to work on developing a green finance mechanism that will help address exactly that problem. Because one of the challenges and we've run into this um, with uh, we have we have something called the CEO Council for Sustainable Urbanization, and it's um, a bunch of U.S. CEOs and a bunch of Chinese CEOs who are Hank Paulson. He really believes very strongly that that the idea that businesses have to be involved in trying to find solutions for these problems. So he's gotten them together, and they're working on model projects, including um, a sustainable, affordable housing project, and. Some of the U.S. companies have cutting-edge um, clean technologies that they're interested in deploying in this project, but the challenge is that those technologies cost more than just building a regular building without these technologies. And so this financing mechanism, which is still to be, it's still be, to be determined how they'll solve this problem, but it's basically going to be some kind of a mechanism that will help to bridge that pricing differential and help to bring... Um, cutting-edge U.S. technologies to China. Uh, but it is, it's, that's, it's a real, you know, problem. So that's, this is, it's, I think the finance question is something that we've been really working hard on at the Paulson Institute, and it's going to be a big um, challenge, but a big part of the solution. So thanks for that question. Anybody else? Thank you so much for coming tonight. It's great to have you here. Thanks.